0: Welcome to InScope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray.
1: And welcome to this week's episode of InScope, the healthcare security podcast. As always, I'm Mike Murray. With me this week is one of my favorite thinkers on all things product security, Matt Clapham. Matt and I worked together at GE Healthcare many years ago, but he's now on to different things, helping make products more secure at other places. And I always tell people I hate reading bios and I hate it when people read
0: mine. So I'm going to let Matt tell you about himself. So Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I like to use the tagline that you echoed there, I make products more secure. And it kind of, if you look at my history, my origin story, right, as some like to call it. I started out as a software tester, and I learned, wow, I really enjoyed breaking things. And so then I found more and more of the things I was breaking was really bad assumptions made on the developer's part about how code was supposed to work. And so they were more and more security related you know, related to that kind of thing. And then I got into IT security type of stuff, and then really uh, saw that product security and and security advisory, like I've been doing for the past decade now, was really an untapped market, an area that everybody needed help with. And so I got involved into that. So from being a lowly software tester who liked breaking things, I learned more about security, was right there at some of the foundations of some things like the Trustworthy Computing Initiative, and then became a product security expert like I am today.
1: And you've worked on some of the coolest things. Like, you've gone from Xbox to medical devices to modern IoT. Like, you've seen the sort of gamut of, I hate some of our marketing terms, the Internet of Things and the Internet of Medical Things. Like, maybe talk about what you think. <laughs> yeah, I could. Matt and I are on video. I saw his eye roll when I said the IOMT phrase which my whole team has heard me rant about because it's more about marketing than it is about truth. But, you know, tell the world what you think of some of the security that we've seen over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years in these things that we're building.
0: First off, I want to say these are my personal opinions, not those of a current or former employers. I'm an old crusty security guy who's been working on product security a decade now. I've seen the good, the bad, and the really ugly. So this is about my experience seeing the really ugly. Anyway, so back to the Internet of Things, right? It's a good way to think of stuff that has a network. And as I always like to say, it's all software. Outside of the big magnets and the... the fan controllers and all that stuff, it's all software controlling it underneath. And so when you think about the internet of things, it sort of implies you've got some sort of device, some sort of networking knows how to talk on a network and do something in the physical world, right? It's that that network to physical bridge. Now, everybody seems to want to put their own little extra letter in there. You know, you can have the internet of medical things, the internet of personal things. As I liked, somebody tried to call it the industrial device internet of things. Put that on an acronym. That's probably a good way to kind of think of some of that kind of stuff. But
1: I think you used that as a title for an RSA
0: talk a few years back, did you not? I put that in my uh, talk a number of years ago about why game consoles and modern uh, smartphones are a good example of how we should be thinking about design. Of things like Internet of Things.
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to take you off your rant there, but people should go look that talk up. It was a great talk.
0: It's a great example of hey, think about the use cases. And if we really want to go hardcore about the physical space, well, you know, game consoles have had to think about that. How do they prevent people from hacking and, and stealing stuff and just, you know, being general jerks and, and ruin everybody's fun by finding ways to make the hardware cheatable? And then if you look at phones, they've got a real robust example of how to do an app store at scale. Because right, they got to get stuff from everywhere and, and be able to provide it to any number of different devices and across the entire install base. And then finally, you know, they've got to be able to handle all of the intake ecosystem and whatnot. And we can really learn a lot in, from both of those cases if we put it in the right context, like in the case of medical devices or industrial devices or insert new IoT type here. So you said something earlier I
1: want to drill down into a little bit, which is that it's all software. And I think one of the more interesting challenges in the medical device space and in the entire IoT space is that many of the companies that are doing this aren't software companies they don't come from you said something about the idea of like building magnets i remember being surprised at GE how often i was in a room full of people who were incredibly like world leading you know phd experts on how magnets or you know transportation trucks or any of these sorts of technologies worked but that software was a new thing. How do you teach an organization that knows how to build spinning magnets, how to build software? Like that's the challenge that you spent the last decade on. I mean, you kind of lived it. So more than most of our audience anyway. I'm still living it
0: because it's a never ending struggle. A lot of it comes down to being able to to show the path to success and how to get them from where they are today, thinking about, you know, a single use or a one-time development Kind of a cost into this more modern kind of a you're always having to adapt and update and then showing them the path about how to get between those two points in a way that teaches them how to do better security and how to do that security at scale when you can kind of put that out you've actually laid out the culture shift necessary to get them to be able to truly do the internet of things from starting out as making magnet controllers.
1: So, I'm just riffing at this point. You know, I'm just coming up with questions on the fly because how do you see the regulatory processes getting in the either helping or hurting? You know, one of the things as you were talking is my thought was often the success criteria and a lot of those organizations seem to be externally set, you know, and we set them by, you know, passing the 510K with a medical device or so you end up with this lowest common denominator. And how do you fight the We're just going to check a box versus we're going to do the real thing. Because I know you've led that effort in
0: different parts of your life. I like to say you don't compliance your way to a secure product. And conversely, you don't secure your way to a compliant product, right? they are different focus areas. Now that being said, compliance or certification directives can help with kind of that min bar, right? Here's the things that everybody's doing and you should be doing too. And a great example from my current space is IEC 62443. It lays out a great set of processes like threat modeling and and static analysis, stuff like that, that you would expect everybody to be doing. And so if you want to say that you're certified to that level, to that, that directive, then you have to be doing all of those things. And so there's a certain amount of, hey, this is what everybody should be doing, so why aren't we doing it? And if you're not doing, it, what does that say about your organization? You know, because customers that care about t- that type of thing are going to be asking for, you know, hey, show me your certification on this standard. So it helps drive that that min bar of of everybody's level. But on the flip side, it does make people tend to get to the point of thinking, oh well, we hit the min bar, so that's all we have to do. And as I like to say in, in some of my previous roles, when you aim for the min bar and miss under the min bar. That's not a good place to be. Right. So something that
1: came to mind again as you're talking is the challenge that you mentioned, the customers that care about that. What role do you see the customers having in this whole area? And specifically, one of the challenges I've seen over the years is the customers want the vendors to do certain things, but do they want to pay for
0: it? I'm trying to think. There's so many different things to unpack there. The customers absolutely are driving and should be driving. They should be expecting a secure product, right? You don't buy a medical device and expect it to get hacked. You assume that it's gonna do its job and do its job well and be able to protect itself and all that type of thing. So there's certainly the customer expectation there. The challenge, though, is, OK, are they willing to pay that additional effort, that additional overhead to be able to make that happen? I was thinking there was a great presentation, of a panel at DEF CON this year where they were talking about, you know, medical device security and whatnot. And it was important. The one thing that I carried away from that is, you know, somebody asked to say, OK, who's willing to pay more for their healthcare? And we think about it, that's one of those things we're going to have to contend with as we get into this, you know, more secure devices. Well, I would love to be able to do that and eventually it will get cheaper. But in the short term, it's going to have to make that trade off of, okay to have this and do it at the degree that you expect it to be is not something that that can be commoditized.
1: We see it in the cloud lately with, you know, Microsoft, for example, and Google does this too, but I just happen to know Microsoft. You get better security features if you pay for E5 Office 365 than you do if you pay for a lower tier of Office 365. Do you see a world where we start to pay where it's like, if you want the secure device, It's 15% more than the one that has all the default hard-coded passwords in it. Like, is that a world we're moving towards?
0: God, I hope not, because there should be a min bar in terms of, you know, we shouldn't expect to have to pay extra to not have backdoors. Those kinds of things, I think, are kind of like the bare minimum. And, And back to the certification thing, I don't know you can certify that kind of an expectation, but it should be, you know, you just don't do certain things like that. Now, additional stuff that requires routine maintenance... Maybe that's where you get into the, you didn't pay for it. And I think one of the important shifts that we have to do to be able to get to this better updates across medical technology and whatnot is get out of the mindset of you buy it once and then the company has to support it. We're stuck in this mindset of, well, I bought a big insert industrial unit thing here, right? And I spent a lot of money when I bought it, but I expect the company to keep updating it and adding new features and whatnot for its entire 25-year lifespan. No. Bits get old quick. And if you want the bits to be refreshed regularly, you need a service plan that pays to refresh the bits because the hardware, the iron might take a long time to break down, but those bits broke down every month.
1: By the way, that's a really, I think you're going to hear people steal that comment because bits get old quick is something that I think, again, going back to the question that I asked at the beginning, these organizations that are good at building things, you know, to steal the IoT moniker, in some of my experience, they have, that same expectation that, you know, well, I designed this magnet and it works the same way it worked 15 years ago, as long as we, you know, roll it off the assembly line the same way. What do you mean the bits get old quick? This magnet thing is good forever. And I think, you know, you talked about culture change. For me, it's how do we get these organizations to understand that? What you just said, the bits do get old quick, and it's going to change the economic model.
0: I think there has to be a carrot and stick approach. And the carrot is saying, well, okay, so say you have uh, some install, one-time install fee for some big thing, right? Because it's a one-time cost to put it in the room and build the Faraday cage around it and all that. But then you're going to have this ongoing maintenance, and part of that maintenance could be physical to make sure that the helium stays topped off on the magnet. And part of that maintenance could be the bits that go in the box, the operating system, the controller, firmware, the features in the applications that actually make the device human usable. That's the kind of stuff that should be refreshed because you get new features and capabilities. And that could be part of the way that you can help sell this or or promote it is like, not only are you getting the routine maintenance, but you're getting the feature improvements, the AI capabilities that weren't thought of when the device came out. 10 years ago, but now are capable given that same piece of hardware. And at the same time, we'll make sure the magnet always works.
1: So how do you solve the OS issue? I've been talking about this in a lot of talks that I've been doing of, okay, I always use our former employer as an example. You know, Say I built a CT scanner in 2005, right? Well, the computers that control that spinning magnet were state-of-the-art circa 2005, probably a Pentium 2 with, you know, maybe a gig of RAM and probably running Windows XP. Well, the spinning magnet still works today. But even if you wanted to put Windows 11 on there, good luck with that. Right, good luck getting that hardware to run that system. How do we su- That's the one that I've been sticking my head in a lot, you know, I've asked our friends at the FDA, I've asked everybody this question. Like, and you have lived that world across game consoles and all of that, you got any thoughts on that sticky thorny problem of like, okay, the even the hardware couldn't run the updated OS, but even if it could, You've got you're way past the patch life cycle of that original operating system, like you've got all these challenges because the magnet lasts a heck of a lot longer than the bits do. A
0: couple of things that I think would be helpful there for starters, when you put something out brand new, I know it's risky and it sounds really scary, but you got to make sure your parts are as modern as you can make them, and then addition to that, you got to make sure you have extra wiggle room because right now adding in 20% CPU performance overhead might seem like, oh my gosh, that's an extra $2.50 a unit. Okay, but great, it's gonna save you a bunch of problem further down when the next specter or meltdown comes in and saps 1.5% of your performance because of the change in the way the kernel works. So if you, if you plan for getting as modern as you can stomach when you put it out, so that you have as long of a, a long-term support lifecycle for your components, And then additionally, design in some wiggle room, changes like that or just making better use of the CPU cycles to add new features and capabilities and higher resolution and whatnot won't be as big of a problem. That's furthering your ability to justify why you now have medical device as a service kind of a thing.
1: By the way, that's a really great point and runs flies exactly in the face of every product manager I've ever talked to at an IoT company. You said the comment about you know $2 a unit. You know that that is the way they have thought for 100 years, is how do I get the cheapest possible price on every single component in that device? And what you're proposing is entirely, almost a rework of that thinking. Like you said earlier, culture shift.
0: There's a time where if you're in a commodity market In my $2.50 example, that could be a lot. And here's a real-world one that I lived, right? Look at uh, Windows XP. The upgrade version was like $90 US street price. It didn't have a DVD playback codec when it first came out because $2.50 for a playback codec is a lot of money on a $90 piece of software. So they had to make it extra an add-on. Now people said, well, what about Mac OS? Mac OS has free DVD playback. Well, yeah, but you're spending, I don't know, $1,500 for a computer. That's a big difference. And that's a much smaller slice of it. So similarly, in this kind of case, again, I'm, these are all made up numbers. But if you're talking about arguing over a 25 cent TPM to get the security benefit versus a $250,000 ultrasound unit or something like that, we're having the wrong conversation. But we've both had that conversation. I know, and I've had similar conversations in other locations. And part of that is that if you started out with a company that made big giant magnets that spun really fast to make electricity and a hydroelectric dam. And that was a pretty simple and straightforward, as long as the magnets were spinning and the rectifier was working, it was making power, right? To a world where everything's all connected, everything is all managed, everything is all talking to each other. There's a big shift there in that going from a, I bought the generator unit five decades ago, versus I bought a service that I've been paying for two decades. That shift I've seen in other areas as well. Look at the way sales had to shift for selling cloud cycles versus licensed copies of an operating system. Because it was you just resulting, you sold individual units. Well, now everything's in the cloud or up somebody else's data center. And so now you're selling CPU cycles effectively. But if you're still rewarding your salespeople on selling the big magnets and they don't get a piece or have any motivation to sell the magnet as a service, your own change, your own internal organizational need for change is going to stop you from being able to make that culture shift across the board.
1: So, and I think I know the answer before I ask the question, but do you foresee a world where, and you mentioned the phone and game console example earlier where, you know, down the road, those control units become effectively fungible. You know, I built this thing with a Pentium two on windows XP and 10 years later, I walk in the door and as part of your quarterly maintenance, I drop in a brand new, kind of like when you go from the iPhone 10 to the iPhone 11, you log in and suddenly all your is there and everything just kind of works and you just go forward. Is this
0: where you think we're going? I think we can if organizations are willing to. And I certainly have a bias for certain cloud providers. But if you look at the major cloud providers, they're all creating an IoT basic kit. That has some sort of device that's an example it's a sample device but it could be customized or built into your particular asic platform but they give you all the pieces parts you need to just put your layer on top so if you have that as a base that you can basically follow their upgrade cycle and your software is designed to just be a module that snaps on top of and is a well-behaved citizen and that's one of the challenges i've seen with software just not being well-behaved on the platform it's on. But if as long as your, your software is in there, then snapping out underlying hardware chunk should be, should in the operative word, uh, be relatively easy. Now, there are some gotchas if you look at, you know, real-time operating kind of worlds. Because, you know, it's not so easy to swap out the controller on a compressor unit when you're talking about it's the thing that keeps the oil refinery from exploding. You got to take maintenance window, you got to plan for that. And also, quite frankly, across the IoT space at every level, we need to plan for that upgradeability. We need to design in the, the redundancy and capabilities necessary so you can swap out one of those components. With only taking minimal downtime or doing it in such a way where there's enough redundancy in the components as a whole that you can take one of the compressor units offline. Fix it and do update whatever you got to do bring it back in test to make sure it's working and then cut back over to the other one right, so that you can do those rolling upgrades and, and bring that along, but largely across the IoT industry i'm not seeing that today.
1: Nor am I. And and I think that the bigger challenge for the medical industry is going to be getting regulatory and and all of the QMSs and all of that stuff to even contemplate the ability to build in this modular sort of the hardware can be swapped out and it doesn't constitute a complete redesign and a recall of the device. I think we have a lot of moving parts to get there, don't you?
0: Absolutely. And regulatory space, we touched on earlier, a point I didn't quite get to. There's a place for regulation to help with that, similar to the certification, right? To encourage, to promote, but they also have to be able to adapt to that world and say, okay, look, and to the FDA's credit, the United States FDA said, look, with respect to cybersecurity, you just need to patch your stuff. Just fix it. It's not a change in the medical use. You don't need to recertify. You got to make sure you don't break anything because you're still on you if you break something. But just patch your stuff, get it done, get the cybersecurity fixes out there because that's more important than worrying about the formalities there. Now, we cert- like I said, we need to make sure we're doing it. And that kind of goes back to my circles background in my earlier point about upgradability, right? We've got to make sure we've got the right stuff to in place to say, even in a heavily regulated, heavily validated, heavily certified environment like a medical device, we can still do all those routine maintenance type of things that we take for granted in the cloud or in a, in a modern client workstation. We can still do those and not have to worry about saying, eh, I'm not sure the results from that last scan are going to be valid or not.
1: 100%. I'm going to take us a totally different direction. You know my love of career topics. I have always believed, and, and you are my favorite example of this, that QA is a phenomenal background for security people and especially product security people. And yet I don't see that many people who start in QA and end up doing what you're doing. Like, how do you think that that's helped set you up for the success that you've had in in all of your various roles?
0: I think in my role, it really helps to have some level or some part of development background, right? Because if you're going to go talk to a team that's making something, you got to know roughly how it's made well enough to be able to speak the same taxonomy, the same language. My time in QA is the thing that I leverage to be able to do that. I was six, I think six and a half years as a software tester. And I did everything from client software like Microsoft Works up through enterprise centralized services like Active Directory Rights Management Services. So I've seen that, that spread. That gives me the ability to kind of see the challenges and the, the testing challenges. But one of the things that I really enjoyed breaking stuff, and so that inquisitive mindset, that challenge, right, the game challenge of saying, oh, I'm going to find a way to break this in three clicks. Right. And then I'm going to go and brag to my test peeps and say, hey, I broke it in three clicks." Oh, yeah, I broke it in two clicks. You know, we can have that kind of a competition that really drove me to want to really figure out ways and see the trends there. And that that exploratory mindset adapts really well to something like security testing right, or penetration testing, because now we're saying taking that same idea of pushing the norms, testing the assumptions, but putting a, a just a security spin on it. So throughout my career, I've been able to go back to that and say, hey, how would I break that? And then being able to say from the experience of having developed stuff, I could say, oh, yeah, that's how I would fix that, right? And be able to put those two together. So every time when I'm doing a consultation with a product team, be able to take that. I know how to speak the language of development. I know how to say, here's how it could break. You know, what could go wrong? And here's what we can do to fix it from what I know and based on your particular nuanced uh, product set. And so this is the path forward that we can take to prevent the problem from ever happening in the first place.
1: I've always thought that that career path is one we should emphasize as an industry more because of everything you just said, right? The instincts you get in understanding how software is built badly give you such good instincts for helping a product team secure it. But like you said, I mean, that is pen testing, right, is having a mental model of how the product you're testing works and thinking, oh, well, if I do this, I bet the developer didn't expect me to do X, Y, and Z right here. Let me do that. And I've always, you know, it's one of the things that I always valued about, about working with you is you have just incredible instincts around those things. And I think it comes from your QA time also comes from, from just the way your brain works. But it's one of those things that I think, you know, if you're out there and you're a QA person and you're thinking, what do I do next? Cybersecurity might be a good career for you. And Matt's a great example
0: of it. Well, thank you. I think it really helped.
1: So, Matt, I could talk to you all day, obviously, but, you know, we need to let the listeners get off to whatever their busy world is. But where can they find more of you? If somebody wants more Matt Clapham in their lives, where can we find what you're up to?
0: So on LinkedIn, I'm not terribly active, but I do uh, occasionally um, put a a tip there. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm usually scrounging and finding interesting insights about product security and other things. So you can follow me at at BroadSec. I nailed that handle. I'm really proud of that one. And uh, you certainly right now with the whole situation of where conferences are at, I'm not sure I'll be traveling anytime soon, but I, I do like to try to get out to the security conferences and really bring that insight, that experience from QA all the way forward to how we can prevent it today to the audiences there at things like RSA and, and others. So when things start to get a little more in person again, I'll probably start to get back out involved on those.
1: And I look forward to having uh, lunch or dinner or something when we get to be in the same spot again. Matt, thanks again for coming on today. This has been brilliant and we'll chat soon, but uh, thanks again.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.